to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Greeting cards, stationery, invitations, these things don't cost a lot of money to buy, but as it turns out, a company can make a lot of money selling them. Today's guest founded an e-commerce invitation and stationery company that printed some serious cash. Allison DeMulder founded her company at the ripe old age of 23 and ultimately employed 30 full-time people and sold to accounts such as Target, Hallmark, Paper Source, and Sur La Top. If you have any feedback on this podcast, I'd love to hear it. I'll even send you a $25 gift certificate. Just email me at roger at streetsmartsuccess.com. Today we have with us Allison DeMulder. Allison is a fellow entrepreneur, a, a very successful one at that, a fellow podcaster and author, and probably other things we may learn. And so, Allison, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger, for having me. You've done like so many cool, interesting things that we're going to talk about. And just by looking at your profile in your own business, it looks like you did like everything, which is kind of a necessity as you and I both know when you're starting from scratch, you kind of have to do everything till you start making hires, which we'll get into before that. And, and we talked a little bit before we started recording. You said you were a, I think, a native Floridian. Were you born there as well as raised? So I was actually born in Manhattan and I lived in New York until I was about seven. And then we moved to Miami Beach. And so that's where I grew up. I moved around a little bit and some different states. And then eventually, it's funny because I spent my whole life trying to get out of Florida. And then I ended up in Tampa and I ended up building a business there and staying there for 20 years. So I consider my hometown Tampa. And, uh, but now I live actually back like in the Manhattan area, 20 miles outside of there, but I will always be a Floridian at heart. So I'm kind of laughing. You said you spent your whole life trying to get out of Florida. Why is that? It's kind of a common thing. (laughs) Floridians kind of joke that they're always trying to make their way out of there just because it would be nice to have seasons and more opportunities and the ability to go on a road trip and not have to drive seven hours to get out of your state. Florida is is limited in some capacity, but it's also wonderful in other capacities. And I made lifelong friends and contacts down there that will never be replaced. But it is kind of a running joke amongst some Floridians. When you say opportunities, a number of years ago, my wife and I made some extremely bad real estate investments in Florida that cost us a ton of money that we lost. But anyway, for another conversation. But the takeaway I had then, and this was like mid-2000s, was that Uh, after the fact that Florida is really like the economy is basically around tourism and real estate. And inevitably there's other industries, but that was generally like the key industries. And other than that, it wasn't, there weren't a lot of huge industries there at that time. Well, it's interesting because 
Each part of Florida is so different. So growing up in Miami, it had a very different feel. And when I go back to Miami, it does not feel the same as when I grew up. But Tampa doesn't have a ton of tourism. It's more on the beach side, which is in St. Petersburg and Clearwater. In Tampa, I would say it's very much like what you're saying is the majority of my friends, they were either doctors or real estate agents and real estate is big down there. Um, I had an invitation company, which was kind of different. There were a few of us, but typically there are a lot of entrepreneurs down there. It's really easy to start a business for so many reasons. Like what reasons? That's interesting. So I would say that in Florida, it, it just in general, being able to start up a company the red tape of it and the bureaucracy is so much easier. So when I moved up to New Jersey and I had to move my company here, there was just so much more bureaucracy to go through, more taxes, more certifications. It almost become inhibiting, like almost not worth it in a way. And so in Florida also, the cost of labor is a lot cheaper. Uh, because the cost of living is a little bit cheaper as well. So it's just, and, and in addition, the cost of renting a space or buying a building, which we did, um, which was a bad investment. So I can relate to what you were talking about. I think just the cost of overall running an operation is less expensive, but again, it could vary depending on the parts of Florida that you're in. Wow. Okay. And that makes just, I mean, a ton of sense. Or the, the way you're describing it is basically everything is cheaper. And so, sure. So it's just a lot easier to build and I guess create profitability and then scale it as, as you're able to grow it. So to take a half a step back, just because I'm a little bit anal about this stuff. So you, when you were a kid, you said you moved to other states. Like what other states did you guys move to as a family growing up? Um, well, actually, no other states as a family. As a family, we only lived in New York and Florida, but I went to school and I went to college in Boston. And then I spent a little bit of time out in Dallas. I lived in DC for a little bit. And that's really it. And now in New Jersey. I see. Okay. Uh, well, you can't accuse me of not listening, Allison. I know. <laughs> so, you know, when I was reviewing and, and preparing for this this conversation we're having, I read that. So invitation consultants, it says 1999 to 2017. So that clearly was the bulk of your career in a in I'm gathering that that was the invitation greetings card business. And then listening to one of your podcasts, um, it said that you had exited. And so Back at its inception, 1999, how did you decide to get into that business? Well, I think that entrepreneurs, true entrepreneurs at heart, take risks. And I obviously took a risk. So I was only 23 years old at the time, and I had very little work experience. I went pretty much straight from doing my undergrad to being a traditional MBA student. And then I worked for about a year in nothing spectacular. And then I just decided to start this business on the side selling invitations. And my fiance, now my husband at the time, his career was in IT. And he's like, how about I build you a website? And I said, a what? And he said, you know, where people can go online and they can search and they can buy things. And I said, you mean like put your credit card online? And we talked to family and friends about this. And the idea of someone putting their credit card online, they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to steal our identity and our credit cards and everything. But very quickly, I guess kind of like as Amazon grew and 
Tower Records, and I guess Virgin at the time was selling online as well. There were a few bigger companies out there that were doing this. So I was like, well, okay, let's jump on the bandwagon. And, um, you know, it just kind of grew from there. So I don't know really exactly what I was thinking at the time, but I was ready to take risks and just start a business because that was the time to do it. We were living in Tampa, rent was cheap. You know, we didn't have any kids. So what better time to start a business? And so how did you start it? I mean, did you start it with just yourself? So I started it with myself and I did that for a couple months. And I'd say within six months, I was sharing an office space with a friend who had a massage therapy business. And then soon I was starting to take over more and more of her office space. And eventually she moved out um, so that I could have the office. But um, I started very slow or maybe it was fast to other people, but you know, part-time people helping out. My husband would help on in the evenings or on the weekend. And I really got the initial idea when I was in my MBA program, one of my uh, project partners, she had these books of stationery. And I said, "What? Are, what is this? I love paper. What are you doing with it? And she said, well, I just kind of carry around these books and I sell stationery. And, and so what we essentially did was we took those books and then we put them online. So the ones that your friend had. No, actually, I ended up going with different vendors. I did my own research. Um, and my thing was, she was into just kind of handwritten stationery, and hers was really a side business. Whereas for me, I guess I sort of was projecting ahead in my mind that I wanted to go further and not be a hobbyist, but I wanted to actually build a company and employ people. And invitations just seemed like the way to go. Uh, because at the time, um, you know, certainly not now, but back then people were having parties and weddings and all types of events. And then eventually, you know, we were B2C then. And eventually when we grow into B2B, it became a game changer selling to corporate. And so it, it said you had a store. When I read that, I was thinking, oh, well, the store came first. It, it sounds like it didn't. No. It didn't. So actually what happened was, um, I'd say about 14 years into my business, we decided to buy a very large piece of equipment. It was a 17 foot printer and we were really moving more towards doing everything in house, uh, because some of our vendors were closing down or we wanted to have more control over the product and also the margins were better. So we had been debating about buying this printer for probably about three years. And it was the cost of a small house in Florida. So uh -huh. naturally it was a decision to make. And so we needed to move our office space into a building that had the proper electric and cooling. And it just so happened that there was a front area of the building. And we just started having people knock on the door and saying, well, can we come in and look at stuff? And then from there, the retail store built. Um, it was more like an opportunity that just came to us. So prior to talking to you, I had never even thought about the invitation business, the greeting card business. I just never thought of it. I, I guess unconsciously, I probably thought because I'm such a simpleton that how do you make money on something you sell for three bucks? So that's about as sophisticated as I can be sometimes. But in preparation for our 
discussion today, I was thinking, hmm, it's actually a pretty interesting business because it sounds like you basically have the cost of the paper and then you have the cost of designing it. And obviously I'm simplifying this and, you know, you could hire a designer, I'm assuming in Florida for, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly at that time, probably for 40 grand a year, I would imagine. So the cost per design, who knows what it is, but maybe as little as 500 bucks. And from that point in time, it's really the spread on, you're making your money on the printing. Is that essentially the model? It is. And you're exactly right about how much uh, we were paying designers, uh, maybe even a little bit less at the beginning. The cost of goods sold, so it became a lot better once we were printing in-house because we were using third parties for design and for the printing of it. You know, certainly we have the cost of the machinery and we also, so I had a rather large staff at my, at my biggest point, we had 30 people. So I, I always had an on-staff accountant. We had IT people in-house front end and back end. We had shipping department. So we had a lot of overhead. And I think probably what hurt us sometimes was how much overhead we have. I know it sounds a lot more simple. Like you said, you know, you design an invitation, you sell it, you print it, you ship it. But it's not that simple because I think that's what kept us in business so long was our attention to detail and quality. And I had an entire customer service team. And I feel like we had one of the best customer service teams in the industry because I had a manager and I had, you know, four to five people that were handling phone calls and it just wasn't via email. And we were always there to help people. So the majority of the costs were were overhead. Or, or people. Yes, but people, I believe, is what built the company um, because I believe in collaboration. And um, I am so thankful and friends with many of these people that I employ through the years because they helped me build the business. We were, we were a team and we were working towards a common goal. And I know it's been a couple of years since you transitioned out. But do you recall if you were doing, I'm assuming at your peak, because it said it on on LinkedIn, $6 million. Do you recall what percent was labor? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I was not the numbers person in the company. I was the creative. Um, I I don't know, 10%, 20%. It's, it's very hard to, to say for sure. But I can tell you it was, it was a large part of um, our costs. I understand. And you were the creative person. And, you know, I've run an ad agency all these years. And the rule of thumb is that your, that as an agency, your, your labor should not be more than 50% of your revenue, essentially with expenses and this and that. And that's kind of a benchmark. So it's something I always like remembered. And then I, then I ask other people, do you recall at your peak roughly what the profit of the company was? I I don't recall exactly what it was, but what I can give you is sort of a, a statement, which is we never had investors and we always, you know, invested money back into the company. So if you have a company that lasted for 18 years, you've got to think that the profits were pretty good in order to keep that company alive and running. Yes, I totally understand. You know, that was the beauty of, and again, I don't want to, go off on a tangent about my business because I'm interviewing you, but uh, the beauty of the ad agency business is that really, the like you're talking about, the bulk of our, there's nothing tangible. We're not manufacturing effectively. And so the margins were high and, you know, off 
a little bit more revenue that you were doing, we were able to put, you know, more than a, shouldn't say this, but, you know, well into seven figures into the, into a bottom line off that. And so what's a range on what you were able to exit for? Um, so I, we sold off the assets of the company because there was some debt that was left and obviously no one wants to take on debt. I don't want to give the exact number because it's, you know, a, a private matter. And I don't think that the other company would like it either, but, um, we were approached twice in 08 and 09 to be bought for seven figures. And I can tell you that we were bought for not seven figures. Um, and so it was, you know, when a business is sold, I think even if you get 50 bucks for it, which obviously, you know, it's a very (laughs) ridiculously number, but the point is that if you can sell for any amount of money, you feel accomplished. And I think that's the way I looked at it that no, I didn't take those seven figure offers back then because I wasn't ready to sell, but at least I didn't have to shut the doors. At least I didn't have to sunset it. At least it went into someone else's hand and we received money for it. I agree with you 600 trillion percent because at the end of the day, and you and I know how difficult it is to build something from scratch, and like you said, and and for it to last 18 years in your case, to have something that has enough value that another entity wants to acquire irrespective of the price is an immense accomplishment. And to your point, and I'm just assuming that your employees were kept on, I don't know, maybe not all, and maybe some left, and maybe they there was some some transition, but I agree with you 100%. And so congratulations for the, for the transition. How did the buyer find you? Well, it's very interesting. So we had gotten to a point in the last year, so in my 17th year, where it was a very difficult decision for me because I really wanted to retire from the company that I built. And I had this aha moment where I couldn't take the company any further. And so I reached out to one of my vendors that I had a very great relationship with. I reached out to people who had offered to buy us previously. um, And none of that panned out because our numbers had dropped a lot from where we used to be, um, which is no surprise because of the saturation in the industry and just advertising costs so many different things. So then I decided to go the route of seeking out um, companies that, that find you a buyer. And this guy said, and I spoke to a number of people, they weren't interested. And finally, I got the best advice from this one company. And he said to me, you know what? You need to find someone who is invested in the industry. And that's what I originally tried to do. But he said, really think about it. Who would really want this company? And it was like a light bulb went off and we had a competitor that were very similar. We've been watching each other through the years. We we worked together on some occasions and we went to them and then the deal was closed probably within a month because it was the right fit. And he was right. There needed to be a vested interest. You can't just sell an invitation company to anyone. It's not going to be absorbed into like chiropractic practice or a lighting company. It has to make sense. Yeah. And the other thing is that, which is probably the reason for that, at least part of the reason, is that it's really hard to sell small companies too, because they're more volatile. There's, and because they're more volatile, there's more risk. And, you know, the bigger the company is, um, 
you know, depending, but by and large, the more stable it is and less risk for an acquirer, largely because, you know, smaller companies like the one that you ran or like the one I run is so dependent on us, right? So it's, you know, key man risk, et cetera, et cetera. So Allison, when you said you wanted to retire, you couldn't take it any further, which is always a incredibly insightful and courageous thing to be able to admit, which I guess a lot of people can't. And then you said that, you know, saturation, which I'm, I guess I'm interpreting as competition. Were those essentially the reason you wanted to retire or was it all the above and more? Or what was it that said, Hey, I want to retire? Well, no, I, what I meant by retiring was that I wanted to retire with my company. So I wanted my business to run for another 20 years so I could retire from it and never have to go and work for anyone else um, just because I loved my company so much. That, that's what I meant by that. I apologize. Oh, no. Thank you for the clarification. So, I mean, are you still working with the company? So I am not. Um, actually, only one employee went with the transition and she's phenomenal. And she happens to be geographically based where the company was sold to. So that really worked out. Um, when I left, I left. And that was really something that uh, both of us wanted. And I could not imagine working in a company I built for someone else, even though the new owners are lovely. Um, so what I did for another year was I had a company that I had spawned off of invitation consultants called Matric and Eve, which was a wholesale greeting company that really skyrocketed in three years. And then one day it just sort of fell apart. Again, the industry just changed so many different things and I sunsetted that business. So I had that experience of not selling it, not really closing a door, like maybe that door sometimes swings open, but I guess I just call it sunsetting. And then I, you know, I've read articles about entrepreneurs and what happens after you close or sell a company and a lot of us kind of flounder around. It's very hard because there's a grieving process. There's a figuring out, you know, what you want to do with the rest of your life process. So it, it's it's not easy. So I'm, I'm not part of the company. I feel you. I feel you. Um, so I have a, a president that really runs the day-to-day of my company, which is every entrepreneur's dream. I mean, maybe not every, but you know what I mean. So let's, for the sake of this conversation, let's call it every entrepreneur's dream. And this guy is so exceptional in pretty much every way. I could never have imagined at any juncture along the way until we hooked up, and which was about five years ago. And he's so good that he's basically, he's rendered me somewhat superfluous my, in my own business. So he runs it and I'm kind of like, well, yeah, what, who am I now? And what do I do? And I, and I felt exactly what you're describing, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not out of the business, but I, the feelings are identical, which is why I'm doing this podcast because I needed a sense of purpose and meaning something that would kind of give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so I'm glad you kind of described that. And so, so was it's, Matric, what's the name of it again? It's Matric and Eve. Yeah, Matric and Eve. I I got a head full of steam talking about myself, my favorite (laughs) favorite subject. Um, So so Matric, and so was that, was that essentially then the same model, but just a spinoff or was there, or were there nuances that were different about it? So it was interesting. And this is something I like to talk about is that 
if you have a business and it's successful, you might want to think about starting a second business with all of the contacts that you have, the assets that you have, because you might not have another opportunity to start a business. So that's what we did. So we sold personalized invitations. I knew all about the paper industry. I had my designers on staff. I had my mega 17 foot printer, the Indigo, and um, decided that why not dip our toe into wholesale? And I learned more in those four years of doing wholesale than I did probably in 10 years of business because it just opened so much to like business concepts and negotiation that I had never done before. So originally it was going to be sort of like an arm of the company and then decided to make it its own company. And so it was a wholesale greeting card and gift company. You know, the two, they intermingled obviously because we were using the same staff, but we tried to keep our books so that we knew how much revenue, how much expenses were going out, um, that they weren't entangled so much. Um, and then that way, when I sold invitation consultants, it was a nice clean break that I could keep my assets and, and my whole company from Matrick and Eve uh, without affecting invitation consultants. How did you come up with the name Matrick and Eve? So my my kids' names are Matthew, Patrick, and Natalie Eve. And so it's really just like a mishmash of their names. Okay. <laughs> it, it, that's what that's what the, the origin of a lot of company names and, and by yes. the way. By the way, we were talking about our kids before we uh, started recording, and we we're in, in, we were talking about your your twin boys and my eighteen year old. My eighteen year old's name is Matthew. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, and so when you were doing wholesale, um, so who were you selling to? Who were the clients then? So our clients were they were anywhere from museum stores to boutiques, paper stores. Um, you name it, if, if they sold gifts there of any type, we were trying to sell to them. And eventually, you know, the most exciting thing for us was that we got into big box stores. And so we were in Hallmark, Paper Source, Sur La Table. And those were very interesting experiences selling to big box stores, negotiating the payments, the shipping. I really enjoyed every aspect of it, but I also love selling to the little mom and pop stores and we would design specifically for them or they would just buy from our catalog. And so we produced probably six catalogs over time. And that was a wonderful experience because I got to work with photographers and flat lake photography and things that I had never done before. It was just, it was an exhausting, but wonderful experience. We did trade shows. I learned how to work with sales reps, how to uh, get picked up by showrooms. It's wholesale is just such an interesting arm of business to work in. And I, I started it because I was getting a little bored of just plain retail. And I think many entrepreneurs do that. We get sort of like this tickle and we have to do something about it. Yeah. But I don't know if we're any different than people that, you know, go to the same job for 15 years and, you know, want to do something different. A lot of them don't because they, you know, they, they've got obligations and can't afford to take the risk, but that's a whole other story. So it's so interesting that you then got into these like big box stores. And so you had to learn, you said with sales reps. So were these people that were employees or were these third party rep firms that got you into those accounts? 
So some of them we actually sold on our own by going to trade shows and just schmoozing with buyers or buyers contacting us and seeing our product, which is really the biggest compliment when they come to you and you don't have to go to them. But what we did at the beginning was we tried to get into showrooms. So for example, in Atlanta and in Dallas and Los Angeles and Las Vegas, there, uh, I'm sorry, not Las Vegas, there are showrooms. And so we were in showrooms throughout the country and we had to send our product to the showroom owner and then they would decide if they liked our our product or not. So you'd send them product decks. There's a lot of rejection that goes on with this. And then there are people who pick you up. And then sometimes you work with rep groups that have showrooms where it just doesn't work out after a couple of months. And you basically pay them a fee to be in their showroom to have the product. And then also you pay a commission to their sales rep. So they're not employed by me. They're employed by the companies. And you have to work with these reps to sell your stuff while they're selling 20 other lines as well. And it sounds like you're very, very well versed in that process. Were you the point person that was dealing with uh, these reps in the showrooms? So I was dealing with them, I'd probably say 75% of the time. And then my husband, who worked in the company for 12 years, he dealt with them 25% of the time. So very often he would go on the road to the shows or to visit the showrooms. But then I had the day-to-day interaction with the sales reps. I see. Um, And you said that they typically, the wheels would fall off after a couple months? It would. They would, um, like you were saying about shiny things, you'd be the shiny thing when you came in and signed up. And then after a couple months, you either kept the sparkle or there were new companies to replace you or you didn't perform or sell like they wanted you to. So there's definitely a lot of turnover in the companies that these showrooms represent, and you have to be able to accept rejection, but it also pushes you to try harder from a design perspective and also from you know just a selling perspective of how you package your goods. And it just keeps pushing you to try harder. And I, I like that. And I love your attitude around you know how you react or respond would be a better word, how you've responded to that rejection. And again, you kind of talked about it in one of your podcasts that I listened to, which we will get to talking about that as well separately. You know, instead of getting cowed by it and discouraged, rising to the occasion, I just love that. We'll just make, we'll make the product better. We'll make the design better. And so I just love that about you. In terms of getting into the big boxes, was that through the reps or was that direct? So I would say it was half and half. So for, I would say, I can't remember exactly which deals came from where, but it was definitely meeting them at the showroom or a rep would sell us. But actually, now that I think about it, it was probably us more working at the showroom, but we were the one kind of selling it to the rep. Um, We also, from Invitation Consultants, had some of our designs sold in Target. And that was a very interesting experience because they actually found us. And like I said, I love when they find you and you don't have to go putting yourself out there. It's, It's much nicer when they show up at your door. How did Target find you? They found us they saw us, I think, exhibiting at a show. Uh, there used to be something called the Stationery Show in New York City every year. And now that's kind of molded into something 
called New York Now. And you just, there are a ton of buyers there and they just come by and you don't even know who you're talking to half the time because they're, they're a little bit cagey. They don't want to announce who they are because then they think that you're going to stalk them, which a lot of people do. Um, and so they had just come by our booth. And then a couple of months later, we get a call and said, you know, we actually print for, we license for Target and we want to print some of your designs. And, and anyone who's worked with Tar- Target is my favorite store. So I'm not knocking them at all, but anyone who's worked with Target knows that any deal you have, you're not, you're not going to retire from that money. It's really street cred. That that's that's all it is. It's not about the money. It's the fact that I can go on podcasts and I can put on my resume that Target picked up some of my designs. That's hilarious. That that's almost like these um, restaurants, and and I don't know. This could be a fact. I just always kind of assume this. And since you're in Northern Jersey and, and spent time in Manhattan, it's what I always assume about these retailers that are like in Times Square, paying God knows how much in rent. I've always made the assumption there's no way they're making money here. And in fact, they might be losing money, and they're really just here for the brand exposure and credibility. And it almost sounds like that. I agree with you. I do. So just out of wild curiosity, because over the years, that's how I've slash we've built our businesses through trade shows, quite frankly, because you can't put a price on meeting somebody face to face. You just can't. Now, all those shows, I did a podcast the other day with a great guy who he's an events promoter. Now he's taking it online and, you know, having to deal with all that. But just out of curiosity on that New York show, like how many people attend that stationary show? It's like 10,000 or a thousand or. I don't want to misrepresent the show um, because I attended it for so many years. Um, I would say it's a few thousand for sure. I mean, I probably, you know, 10, 20,000. Otherwise, what's the point of putting it on? We certainly didn't have 10,000 people coming by our booth, but um, it's a, a national show that people would go to to buy from. Atlanta is is huge too. And Dallas, there, there are lots of opportunities to showcase product. But yeah, you have thousands and thousands of buyers that are coming. You know, it, again, when we were talking at the beginning, just my complete naivete, it sounds like the stationary business is a big business. It, it was a big business. Um, it's definitely, in fact, I was talking... Um, I still have great relationships with a lot of my vendors and we were talking the other day and just how sad it is that so many larger companies have closed down that we used to work with or they sold off. And there used to be through time, you know, as venture capital became popular through the years and they had more money to spend on advertising, we were becoming a much smaller fish in the pond. But there were always like crumbs that fell off the table, like a good amount of crumbs. But now I feel like it's a lot harder to even get a crumb to fall off the table because people are not writing notes. They're sending emails and TikTok videos. And that's the way the new generations are communicating. So it's not the industry that it used to be, even though it's still a saturated industry. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's really true. I'm kind of laughing. Yesterday, we had a business lunch. We, my wife and I, having nothing to do with my business, actually, it was a real estate business. 
and people that were doing been doing stuff with a long time. And anyway, there was a younger gentleman with with the company that we were having lunch with, and he cannot be over thirty. He can't be over thirty. Maybe he's thirty one, but I, I'm guessing he's like. 29, 30 years old. And lo and behold, he wrote us a thank you note. And oh, I wow. almost, yeah, exactly. And I almost like fell over dead. I'm like, wow. But <laughs> <laughs> like, no one writes thank you notes, much less men and men that are like 29. So I, to your point, yeah, I, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, it's a casualty, not the business still exists. I understand that. But the decline is due to digital. It's like people, consumer behavior has changed and is changing. So you started a podcast. The name of it is Emerson Built That, which I love that name, um, but I have no idea what it is. So what's the origin of the name? Thank you. Um, Again, it's one of my kids' names. So my son's, one of my son's names is Matthew Emerson and he, um, he loves Starbucks. And whenever he goes to Starbucks, he always gives an alias. He just refuses to say Matthew and he, he's talking to someone or, or giving a name at a store and he just doesn't want to give his name. He thinks it's funny. He always says Emerson and it became this family joke. And I said, you know what? I like the name. Obviously I gave it to you. It's quirky. He's quirky. Emerson built that. Like, this is what my podcast is about. It's about building companies and talking to people about building their companies. And that's how the name came about. So it started uh, a few months ago in what has been your experience? What are some of the highlights of doing the podcast? Well, I actually, I love podcasting. I never thought that I would. I didn't listen to many podcasts before I started, but now I listen to them all the time. And by the way, you have a great podcast because I listen to various episodes and, and I just love it because you talk with other entrepreneurs. And that's what I built mine on as well, is that, you know, I love the idea that I can speak with other people who built companies and very often they're like me. They didn't take any investors in, which is, you know, I have no issues with companies that take investment, but it's kind of like a different, has a little bit of a different feel, different issues with it. And sometimes it's just a monologue of an experience that I went through. I'm really big into leadership and collaboration. And I like to talk about that. I also like to talk about experiences that I had with customers through the years because I've had like 10,000 of those. But I, I love just hearing how people built their companies. And even if they're in different industries than I was in, we all have commonalities as entrepreneurs that we can relate to. And it's somewhat of a support group in a way, because after I sold my company, I really grieved for three years. Um, and it was very, very difficult for me. And I finally feel like I'm coming back out of my shell through the podcast and doing something that I love, which is, you know, talking about owning a business. Well, good for you that this is something that's enabling you to kind of um, transition out of that grief. And, you know, you, you took an action and you're doing it. And, you know, it takes a minute or two to set up a podcast. You know, just don't press a button and you've got a podcast going. And I have to thank you for complimenting me on mine. I, I really, really appreciate that. As you may know, you don't know what people think. Your, your friends listen and tell you how great it is, but they're not going to tell you it's terrible because they don't want to hurt your feelings. And so, <laughs> so you're kind of like, is this any good? Who knows? 
So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And I feel the same way. I mean, this is the most fun I've had in a long time talking to people like you. And I agree. And the reason I did it is that yeah, I mean, we're a, a different breed, which sounds really arrogant and it probably is arrogant, but it's not for everybody because it's just like, you know, it, just in reading your profile and, you know, obviously this is an hour or whatever, and inevitably there are zillions of details that you were in charge of building that business. I can tell, I mean, even, even like you said, like launching a new catalog. Oh, hey, well, we're just going to launch. I mean, I would never launch a catalog. All I have to do is look at one and go, I would never do this. I couldn't do this. And, you know, you did it and it's not easy. I mean, and you oversaw the design and you oversaw the printing. I mean, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work and there's headwinds coming at you in a million different directions into last 18 years. It puts you in rarefied air. And so I appreciate that about you and I, you and I share the same sentiments around that. I have exhausted myself. I'm talking way too much and, and I haven't even had coffee yet because it's not even eight <laughs> o'clock here. So Allison, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. You got it. And I'll talk to you very soon. Street Smart Success.